I've actually asked somebody to carry my table every time because it weighs much more than you think it does. And I can't be up here fighting for my life and out of breath and also preach to you guys. Uh, it is it's so good. It's so good to be together, especially this weekend on Vision Weekend. Before we jump into that, though, doing good month, huh? We put this on your radar last weekend. We said 40% of families, 40% of kids in Michigan in our home state are food insecure. They have trouble. Uh, they come from families who have trouble buying even the basic necessities of life. Things like food, things like good food. And on top of that, we highlighted last week that if you come from one of these families, you're 2.9 times more likely to suffer negative, to suffer bad health outcomes later on in life. There's a lot of numbers I recognize that are coming at you, but the most important one is that number one, is that tomorrow there's a kid going to school who doesn't have enough to eat, not at school and not at home. There was tons of federal dollars being funneled into the school system to provide nutritious lunches for kids coming out of COVID. Those have largely ended. At the same time, guys, you get that food costs more than it ever has before. I live in the epitome of suburbia, and my neighbors are like, how do we get chickens because the cost of eggs is so high? And I'm like, we need to do something about this. That's where the kids' food basket comes in and helps. And they interrupt this cycle. Uh, They provide for these kids in two ways. Uh, Number one is nutritious food uh, for the kids while they're at school. And number two, their flagship uh, sack supper program. So they actually provide a home meal for the kids to have for dinner later on that night. Two meals a day instead of just one. It's really, really cool because they have found that good food leads to good health, leads to a good future. And so here's the pitch. And again, I'm just going to ask, let's do the phone thing. All right, it's cheesy. Just come on. It's the tiniest thing. You all have a technology addiction to start off with. Anyway, your body wants to hold a phone. I'm just asking you, hold the phone. We can wait. It's fine. You guys got phones. Get the phones out. Folds and heights. I can see you. There's cameras anywhere. There's no privacy in the world anymore. I can't actually see, but that's fine. You got your phones out. We're just going to hold the phones. Here's the pitch. We're going to interrupt this cycle by partnering with Kids Food Basket to do something about it. For the low, low price of $29.95, we got a cheesy graphic. We have a cheesy graphic. $29.95, you too can interrupt this cycle. For $29.95, you can buy one food item, a fruit or a vegetable, one serving for an entire school for $29.95. That's incredible. In fact, it was so incredible, hard to believe, so we looked into it. We found out because they grow their own food, strategic partnerships, a lot of stuff they get for free, they can, they can get fruits and vegetables in the hands of an entire school, one serving, for $29.95. Listen, I'm just asking the rhetorical question, is God maybe putting it on your heart to feed the hungry today? This is a full-on sales pitch, okay? Like, I'm just everything. I'm in, all right? $29.95. You guys know groceries cost more. Everything costs more. But listen, here at Encounter, we are committed to keeping our costs low. And so we have not raised the price of this event in the years that we have been doing good campaign. It still stays fixed at $29.95. Take that, Federal Reserve, and the interest rate rising. We're fighting inflation today. $29.95. Some of you, I want to be honest, some of you are not led to give $29.95. You're being led to give $295. You're being led to give $2,995. It's not one serving 
for one school, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 100. You can go to the website, encounterchurch.org slash doing good. And you click on the little button there, and you can make a gift. Maybe it's $29,000, maybe it's $2,900. Maybe you're moving the decimal place over and going, listen, like, right now, I am one of those people, right? I am in that boat, that few scarcity boat. And so it's going to be $2.95. It's going to be 29 cents. It doesn't matter. 100% participation it's good. We're interrupting this cycle. Good food, good health, good future. But wait, there's more. I know. Can you even believe it, right? I'm here to get you in on the ground floor of a tremendous opportunity. Next week, when you come to church, you can bring one of those food items, a cheesesteak, applesauce, some kind of a healthy treat. And we're going to actually put those sack suppers together. I mean, how Jesus-y is that? We're going to like... Come to church, worship God, and then you're going to like leave church and on your way out, put together a few meals to literally feed the hungry. It's so incredible. Anyway, check it out. Doing good. EncounterChurch.org slash doing good, And thank you for having so much fun playing along. Let's pray together. Jesus, Jesus, we know what you care about already. Uh, you're... you're your half-brother told, it to, told us to it in James 1, 27. That pure religion, faultless religion is this. To care after the widow and the orphan. And we know that there's a lot of those in this, in this demographic. People who don't have enough to eat. And so I ask that you would convict our hearts, that we would be generous, and that we would be cheerful in our giving. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As I said uh, a little bit earlier, this is, uh, this is Vision Weekend here at Encounter, and we're really excited uh, to be together. We're really excited to introduce our theme for the year. It's kind of the posture that we're going to do ministry all throughout the year. And how this came about is uh, Joe Hayes, Bolton Heights location pastor, and I did this little mini retreat where we try to just discern the will of God and try to make some plans for the upcoming year. And this is, this is really what we heard Jesus telling us to tell you. Uh, it comes with a, a, a theme for the year, which is toward Christ together, and along with a verse from Hebrews, which we'll get to in just a moment. I don't want to start at the Hebrews verse because I want to create a little concept, a little little picture around that. And the, and the picture around that is, um, I was moved uh, several years ago. Now, I was moved personally to to start moving, to do a race. Uh, in fact, the longest race that I've ever run before. I did a lot of shorter ones, and I thought it's time to increase some of that mileage and really stretch myself in very literal ways at times and start putting the miles on. So I begin training for this race, and anybody who's trained for something, you kind of get, it's a time commitment involved, and, and the time goes up, and the miles that go up, and I thought at the beginning, I'm crushing this thing. I got it. It's easy. This is going to be, like, easier than everybody says that it's going to be. And then Later on in the summertime, I realized, oh, no, 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 I've made a huge mistake. Everything hurts. I've got hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, heel pain, really just all the pain. Everything hurts all the time. And so I end up having to take the last month of training off, but it's fine. I did a good job in the first half of training. I can miss all those long runs. And I show up for race day, and it's like fear and trepidation, but I'm going to be fine. I can make this. I'm a, I'm a young, healthy guy. I'm a young, healthy guy. Okay, thank you for laughing at that one. That really builds me up. Anyway, we're going to do this race together, right? and I'm out there, and I'm running, and it's, it's like immediately not going well. Like mile seven, my little watch gizmo stops telling me how fast I'm going and how far I went, and like, that's discouraging. But I still got my pacer until about mile nine, and he takes off, 
He didn't change his pace. He's a pro. I definitely changed mine, and I just kind of watch him go out of sight. I'm like, I suppose I'll wait for the next one or two coming up after him. At my old 13.1, I, I step on the mat at the halfway mark. And I remember it was 13.1. I remember it was exactly halfway because my AirPod falls out, and I can't get the other AirPod to connect without the one AirPod, so I'm like down 100 bucks. Plus, i got to finish this terrible race without music that I haven't trained for, or a watch, or a pacer. What is even happening? Why did I do this? At mile 17, I see my family, and I wear the, the, the brightest smile I can possibly muster. I, I brought a picture of what I look like, and I just, <laughs> I just want to give you a picture. That guy is not well. I mean, everything hurts, right? I mean, technically it's running, maybe. I think you have to have two feet off the ground. I don't know. It isn't, it isn't going well. And I'm telling myself, it's 17 miles in. That's a long ways. I'm also saying it's 9.2 more miles to go, which seems much longer than 17. I'm not a math guy. I'm a humanities major, but I'm trying to figure this sort of thing out. And with every footstep, I've got the, one, the same question in mind. How am I going to finish this race? How am I going to get myself across the finish line? In your Bible, in Hebrews chapter 12, there's an open letter that's written. And he simply asks this same question with some answers. How are we going to cross the finish line? How are we going to finish the race? Not, not, a, not a marathon, but that is the metaphor that he uses. He's asking the question, how do I finish the race of faith? When there are so many setbacks and there are so many drawbacks, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he was. Um, maybe it's Paul, probably, maybe it's Apollos, Barnabas, not, not really sure. But he's writing this kind of open letter to encourage these Jewish Christians, hence the name the Hebrews. He's writing this open letter uh, to people that come from a Jewish background that are living in a Greco-Roman world. I mean, they're squeezed from every side. And he just wants to tell everybody, the TLDR, the spoiler of of the book of Hebrews, three simple words, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I recognize that you're being squeezed on the religious side from the Jewish community. Jesus is better. I recognize that you're being squeezed from the top down, from from the government, from the Greco-Roman authorities ahead of you. And he's just going, Jesus is better. I recognize that there's setbacks and recognize that there's obstacles. And he just wants you to know that Jesus is better. Hang on. Finish the race well. Jesus is better. And you have your own set of obstacles. You have your own set of setbacks. I know because I've talked to you. And potentially just as important, I've also talked to you who aren't here anymore. And the reasons why you said that you can't finish the race of faith or sometimes can't even start is because you open up this book and it's ridiculous. Like there's stories in this thing, right? A fish or maybe it's a whale. I don't know. That's not really the detail that matters. Swallows a guy whole, spits him up alive three days later. You know, the whole, the the central turning point, the central event that this entire book was built on is a man who died at the hands of professional executioners. So, you know, they finished the job and then he rose from the dead And you're going, the obstacle that I have of faith is I don't know if I can trust a book like this anymore. I don't know if I can finish the race with my doubts in hand. Or maybe forget about the book. Maybe you're looking around and going, "I, I cannot conceive and I cannot submit myself to a God who is kind and benevolent and gracious when the world is anything but 
Why would he allow this to take place? Or why would he allow her to do what she did? Betrayal. And she calls herself a Christian. Why would I want to associate with that? You have setbacks. You have obstacles. You have a million and one reasons not to finish your race of faith well. And as author of Hebrews in chapter 12, we open it up and we give three helps along the way, three encouragements along the way. Let's go there from Hebrews 12 and, and read the first two verses just all together. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The race image, the race metaphor is is not mine, it's theirs, it's his. Author of Hebrews, he brings up the the idea uh, of a race. It was much more grueling than something that I would do. Uh, The word that he uses in Greek language to write about the race is the word agon, where we get our word agony from, which just feels appropriate, (laughs) if you ask me. The race specifically that he probably has in mind as he puts this together is the Greco-Roman Olympic pentathlon. It's a list of five events. I won't bore you with the details. It's a lot of running, jumping, throwing. But the last one, not like the Olympic pentathlon today, the last one is a Greco-Roman boxing match where they fight each other. They put on these leather gloves, not to protect the other person's face, but to protect their hands while disfiguring their face. And the first person to drop to the ground loses. Agony is probably a good word to describe it. I just want to like highlight that when the author, and he's, he's trying to like come up with words or come up with an image, and he's like, this is, this is, what, the, the, this is what the race of what... This is what the life of faith is like. It's agony. It's agonizing. It's like that final, that final competition in the pentathlon where there's like wrestling going. This isn't a playground. This is a battleground. And I highlight that just because for some of you, your walk is not easy. This life of faith that you're on is not a fun one at times. And I just, I want to tell you, like, that's Okay. Just because it's hard doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. I like encourage you along the way to say, Jesus never promised to make our lives easier. He promised to make our lives better, to give us life and have it to the fullest extent possible. If it feels hard at times, stay encouraged. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It might just mean that you need a little help along the way, and that's okay too. And so we've got three of them. The first help is that he has given you right here and right now, he has given you a community that is, number one, unwaveringly Jesus-centered. When we talk about running a race of faith and like trying to make it, to drag ourselves across the finish line, I think it's really, really important to clarify a couple things. Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter. He's the author and he's the completer. 
He's the one who started it, and he's the one who's going to carry you on over the finish line. It's like our race, but he's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's my race. I'm the one who's doing the heavy lifting on your behalf. You're going, dude, I can't make it all the way. I can't finish this thing strong, this race of faith. I can't end well. I'm not going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, because I'm not strong enough to get across the finish line. He's going, you're right. But I am. It isn't even your race, it's mine, and I'll carry it on. And this is how we know he's good for it. He gave us a deposit. Uh, several years ago, I sold a car, and it wasn't like a, a nice car. It was kind of an, an old car, but it was still a few thousand bucks. So I paid to have it listed a few places, you know, like cars.com, Auto Trader, and small plug there, I guess. Maybe they'll give us some advertising money. I don't know. I, I, I list the car, and some people show up who maybe want to buy it. This one guy's like, I'm in. I'll buy your car from you at the sale price. Sweet. He goes, slight problem. I don't have the money right now. I'm like, that's a bigger than slight problem. But okay. He goes, I'm going to go to the bank. I'm going to get my money. I'm going to come back tomorrow, the next day, sometime soon. Would you hold the car for me? I'm like, no, dude, I was not born yesterday. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. But I'm not like, but I don't, it doesn't make me trust people anymore. Okay. So here's what you're going to, little heart coming out there. We'll get to that later. Uh, here's what we're going to do. You're going to give me a deposit. You're going to give me uh, some earnest money. Give me a hundred bucks. So at least you don't come in the next couple of days. You can pull out a couple more ads and list this thing while I tell people, no, you know, the car is sold. So I, on like a, a notepad, on a sticky note, we write out like our names, $100, hold the car, 48 days. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that's not worth the paper it's written on. We both sign it because like that felt official. You know, he gives me a hundred bucks and, uh, and I wonder if I'm ever going to see him again. He goes to the bank a couple days later. He gets the money, comes out all the money, you know, minus a hundred dollars that he already paid and he buys the car. Obviously, he buys the car. He's already got a hundred bucks invested. He already put a hundred dollars down so you know he's going to come back and he's going to pick up the car because I got his, his hundred bucks. I'm going to keep his hundred bucks. Jesus put down a lot more than a hundred bucks on you. Like you're in this middle of a race right now and you're going, man, everything hurts. I think I'm dying. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it across this finish line. And Jesus is going, first of all, it's not your race. It's my race. And if you want to know, if you want to be reminded that I'm going to carry you across the finish line, I put down my earnest deposit. I put down way more than a hundred bucks. I shed my blood for you. Yeah, I'm going to carry you on. Yeah, I caught you. In fact, Jesus is like, dude, do you recognize? Do you not recognize? I'm more invested in you and your success on this faith walk than you are. I've got more in on this than you do. I got you. That's why it's so critically important that we remain a community. That's number one. Unwaveringly Jesus-centered. While at the, time, at the same time deeply committed. Deeply committed. That op- opening line. Um, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, I got to do like the, the preacher thing. Every time you come to the word, therefore, you ask yourself, what's it? Therefore, solid, awesome. Go back to the previous chapter, biblical hermeneutics in a nutshell. <laughs> and you, just, you see the cloud. You see some names. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab. Not people without fault, certainly, but 
I mean, held up as like, hey, listen, these people have gone before. You have a great cloud. You have a great cloud of people all around you. Kentwood, take a look around. Left to the right. It's cool. You can do it. It's all right. In church, it's fine. Right? You've got a great cloud. Fulton Heights, left and right. Yeah? You've got a great cloud. Church online, watching by yourself. You should have come to church today. (laughs) It's an awesome cloud we got going on here. Right? I mean, the danger, the alternative is traveling alone. I mean, it could cost your life. Or a significant part of it. James Franco starred in 127 Hours, a movie based on a book, uh, some years ago. And just a real quick question. Has anybody seen, we got a picture of the movie, kind of screen cover. 127 Hours, show of hands. Have you guys seen it? I am so sorry. I do not recommend watching 127. I'm just going to give you the overarches and old movies, so spoilers. You should have watched it by now if you're going to. Again, recommend not. Uh, movie, Aaron said. Aaron is a kind of a backpacker, climber, hiker type guy. Uh, he goes on a hike all by himself. He's out in the uh, canyons in Utah. He's out there hiking. He's descending into this ravine. He, he knocks open an 800-pound boulder that comes in and smashes into him and then lands, bottom of the canyon, on his right arm. And he's pinned to the canyon floor. Nobody knows where he is. He takes a little inventory of what he has available on him. Cell phone, no. Uh, 12 ounces of water, two burritos, and a pocket knife. 127 hours recalls or references the amount of time in between when he was trapped in the canyon floor and when he was rescued. He was not rescued in the canyon floor. He had to get out. 800-pound boulder on his right arm. He said, uh, three days in, he started seriously contemplating what it might look like to amputate his right arm with his pocket knife. He would drift in and out of consciousness. He had a vision of being married, playing with his son, missing his arm. He said that vision carried him forward. Odd thing about it was he wasn't married, he didn't have a son, and currently he still had his right arm underneath an 800-pound boulder. Hundred and twenty hours in or so, he finishes exiting the canyon, leaving his right arm behind. He is found by some hikers as he finds his way back to the trail, a hundred and twenty seven hour long journey. I want to recognize that like there's an element of this story. You can see it through a couple lens. The first one, it is an incredibly macho thing to be able to claim that you amputated your own arm in a canyon with a pocket knife. There's another lens that you could read this through and say, you are so dumb on your hike that you didn't leave a note to tell people where you are going. <laughs> In the movie, 127 hours, after it finishes, it cuts to some actual footage of Aaron, real-life Aaron, and he's playing with his son, his wife is in the scene, and then there's like this little epilogue that pops up afterwards 
that says, uh, Aaron continues to hike and explore today, da, 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 and he always leaves a note. <laughs> he gets it. He recognizes how dangerous it is to go alone. And he makes a commitment not to do life alone, to push away from isolation. He gets what we get around here, that you can't do life alone. You can't do illness alone. You can't do cancer alone. You can't do addiction alone. You can't go down financially alone. You can't fix your marriage alone. We do life together. And thank God that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that make sure that you don't have to do life alone. We're unwaveringly Jesus-centered. We're deeply committed. We're going to show up. We're going to be there. We're going to be the cloud that Jesus has asked us to be, representing him in those environments. And the last one is that we will be courageously unified That's what's going to help carry us across that finish line, how Jesus is going to carry us across that finish line. Listen to that verse one more time. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I just want to like point out that those are separate things for the author here. Like there's the sin that entangles and there is the other things that hinder us. That like the stuff that's hindering you might not necessarily be sinful, but it is stopping you. Like, it's a, it's a disposition, maybe it's an outlook on life, maybe it's a hobby that you keep. It's not necessarily sinful, but it is stopping you. I just want to highlight that. But what is both hindering you and entangling you? Uh, Joe and I, as we pull away, you know, toward Christ together, what's hindering, what's, what's, what's got us, what's trapping us? Division entangles. Divisiveness hinders us. Now, this little gem comes from Francis Chan's book, Until Unity, and he just, he points out, like a lot of us uh, that have been around the church world for long enough, we get like in uh, Galatians 6 is the fruit of the Spirit, and like you don't have to be in church like real long to start to understand like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, righteousness, self-control, and you've maybe got like a song about that, and it's, it's awesome, it's true. Like this is what the presence of God in our life grows in us, the fruit, it's good. The chapter that gets significantly less airtime, previous chapter, Galatians 5, the fruit of the sinful nature or the fruit of the flesh, Paul writing to the Galatians and all of us, he points out like, Dirk, apart from the presence of God, looks like, and he just kind of runs through this list of like really nasty stuff. And I just wrote it for you, Galatians 5. The fruit of the sinful nature looks like sexual immorality. It looks like impurity, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And you're like, dude, what didn't you say? <laughs> and a lot of us, don't we, we like run through this list and we're like, oh yeah, like check, check, I'm good, I got that. It's like sorcery, no, no, I'm good. Idolatry, no golden calves here, I'm good. Right? And we're running through this list and we're going, oh man, sweet, I am good, right? Move on to chapter six. And we miss like what's kind of sandwiched in the middle of all of that. Let me, let me see if you, if you get it. Rivalries, dissensions, and division. I sh- tell you, you will surely not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
again, coming back to Chan's observation, church unity is not optional for us. It's mandatory. It's required. I think that good theology creates humility, which in turn binds us together in unity. Uh, good, good theology, in the, in the words of John Calvin, I spent like seven years in schools named after him, and I almost never quote him. So now you're just going to give me this one, okay? In the Institutes, he starts off, uh, knowledge, like, like true and good, I'm paraphrasing, knowledge is built on two things. This is what I remember, uh, knowledge of self and knowledge of God. We recognize who we are in relation to God, and it does something in us. It, it, it provides some of that humility, the good theology humility, and provides then on out of that a sense of unity where we're, we're joined together. We have to recognize, though, who we are in God. We have to recognize our first identity. And this is the thing that we, like, mess up all the time. Because some of us, we try to be, like, super good and super holy, and we're like, oh, I know. My true and first identity is I'm a worm, not a man. I'm broken, and I'm sinful, and I'm awful. And I just want to remind you, that's Genesis 3 and onward theology. The Bible had two chapters ahead of the fall where God creates people and he communes with them and he walks with them and he goes, you want to know who you are? You are the very image of God. You are beloved and you are loved to death and back again to new life. That's your first identity. A child of God. And we look at him and we're going, I don't know, but I think, it's, I think my identity is going to be based on how I voted every couple of years in an American election. Your first identity is a beloved child of God, loved to death and back again, to new life in him. That's who you are. My identity is built on my sexual orientation and how I identify. No, 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 no. Your identity is you are a child of God, beloved by him, loved to death and back again, to new life. Your first identity matters. When you start to see somebody else that same way, it's pretty hard to maintain the rivalry, dissension, and division. It's pretty easy to see how we can come together just a little bit more, being courageously unified. Uh, Three helps to help us cross the finish line unwaveringly Jesus-centered, deeply committed to this great cloud, courageously unified. And a bonus material, a trick question. How am I going to cross the finish line of faith? I won't. He will, and he has. You know what held Jesus to the cross 2,000 years ago? Like sometimes we have this picture, especially in Lent, this preparatory season, we're moving into Good Friday. And we have this picture of Jesus and he's beaten up, he's bloodied, he's bruised, he's got the crown of thorns. And he doesn't look well. And we're like, oh, I know what held him to the cross 2,000 years ago. It's those nails through his hands as thick as railroad spikes. They, yeah, they held him there. Come on. The, the dude, he raised the dead. In the middle of a storm, he, he stood up, he spoke to the weather, and it listened to him. I submit to you, it was not the nails that held him there. Verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
It was his joy, church. He's not looking for his father's approval. He's not looking for the adoration of the angels. He had all that already. The only thing, the only one he didn't have is you. And he didn't go to the cross sorry and begrudgingly. I can't believe I have to bail out these Genesis 3 sinners one more time. He goes to the cross with joy in his heart because he's winning you back. Some of you have grown up on the words of John 3.16. God so loves you. And you never have stopped and thought for just a second that he also likes you. And he prefers your company. And so today, we reflect on the joy that held him there. And God loves you. And God likes you. And you are his joy. Let's talk to him. I invite you to stand up and we're going to pray together. Amen. Amen. Jesus, it's your joy. Jesus, you're smiling right now. Jesus, as we come to this new experience of your love and your grace, maybe we see you in a new way. Maybe we're reminded of how you have once appeared to us in our past. You pick us up, you carry us down that race, and you don't do it bitterly or angrily, begrudgingly, as a duty you wished you didn't have, God, you do it with joy. And you meet us there at the finish line. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for liking us. Thank you for joy. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group, or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.